Welcome to this special episode of MedTech Connect. I'm Hannah Daniel, US regulatory reporter. And I'm Eliza Slaughter, regulatory journalist for the EU and UK team at MedTech Insight. Sadly, this is my final week in the role as I'm transferring over to one of MedTech Insight's sister publications, and this will therefore be my final MedTech Connect episode. So in this episode, instead of interviewing a guest, Eliza and I are going to recap some recent digital health regulatory developments in both the EU and US. So let's just start with what's been going on recently in the EU with the AI Act. Yeah, so the AI Act has been one of the biggest ongoing developments in European regulation this year. The scope of the Act is extremely broad and will, when adopted, set legislative requirements for almost all AI products, including medical devices. The AI Act will apply on top of sectoral medtech and IVD regulations, meaning that companies will likely need to demonstrate compliance with both the AI Act and the medical device regulation in the EU. The reason why I'm using words such as likely is because the final text of the AI Act is still under negotiation. Without getting too bogged down in the details of Europe's legislative system, this means that the final details of the AI Act are still being determined and debated by policymakers and EU politicians. I've published two articles recently on MedTech Insight, which can be found by searching for the AI Act Legal Deep Dive Part 1 and 2, in which several legal experts explain the nuances of the AI Act from a legal perspective, obviously, because they are lawyers. Um, so I'd really recommend reading those if you're wanting to know like the ins and outs of how the AI Act will actually affect MedTech. Definitely. And those will be linked in the podcast descriptions and in the article. So talking about the MedTech industry, how have they responded to the AI Act overall? And what is the purpose of the proposed legislation? So the MedTech industry response to the AI Act hasn't been super positive. As is often the case with new regulations, many medical device manufacturers and software developers feel that these requirements are burdensome and will stifle innovation. The AI Act specifically has been criticised by not just the European medtech industry, but also other global authorities. Uh, the UK medtech regulator has described the EU approach as heavy and suggested that a lighter touch approach is more suitable for fostering innovation. But in recent weeks, I have noticed attitudes shifting somewhat. So while the medtech industry is still keen for tweaks to be made to the AI Act that will reduce the burden on device manufacturers, it seems that opinion leaders across the board are recognising the dangers that AI poses and the need for robust regulation. So you mentioned that the UK is taking a lighter touch approach to AI regulation. What does its governance framework look like if there is one? Yeah, the UK is an interesting one because it has formally proposed what it calls a pro-innovation approach to AI regulation, whereby guidance documents and harmonised standards will be used in place of legislation. But I wouldn't be surprised if the government U-turns on this original position, given that the Prime Minister himself has spoken recently on the dangers of AI and the need for the UK to be a world leader on AI safety. So it will be interesting to see whether the UK sticks to its plans of using guidance over regulation, or whether it does indeed introduce legal requirements for AI products. So we've heard a lot about the UK and EU, but I'm interested to hear what's going on across the pond. While the US doesn't have the same level of comprehensive AI regulations uh, as Europe will have when the AI Act is adopted, what are the Food and Drug Administration and Congress doing to regulate AI devices? 
Yeah, there's been a lot of movement recently around AI devices, specifically trying to get regulations up to speed with innovation. So one highly anticipated document that came out recently was the FDA's guidance on predetermined change control plans, which are pieces of pre-market submissions that manufacturers include in their submissions that would essentially go over the changes that one intends to make to an AI or ML device after it's on the market. To do this, however, manufacturers really have to know their devices and be able to predict how their device might need to change after it's approved. I would say, though, that the uptake of AI in the medical community is still pretty slow, partly because of, you know, regulations. And while there was a large number of AI devices approved within the past few years in the U.S., a majority of them are still used for imaging because AI is really good at pattern recognition. Yeah, it's worth mentioning, actually, that the MHRA, which is the UK's medtech regulator, has recently said that it is going to follow the FDA's guidance on predetermined change control plans. So it seems that, yeah, there's an international view there where countries are borrowing things from each other. That's an interesting development that's happened recently, I think. That's really cool. Yeah. As you said, screening tools are a place where AI is really quite good in medicine. But what about chatbots and large language models? Would you be able to talk about those? Absolutely. Um, I kind of wanted to include this part because of a recent story I did about an article written in Nature, the science journal, about whether or not chatbots, or also as they're technically called, large language models are ready to be used as medical devices. These can be chatbots used for intake, for communicating with patients, or for clinical aspects of healthcare, such as actual diagnostics. But basically, the authors argued that due to current regulatory standards for medical devices, and the fact that there are essentially an infinite number of inputs and outputs from chatbots, these devices aren't ready to be used as medical devices. But because of this, the authors gave some great advice for companies who are looking to manufacture medical chatbots. And one of the important things was making sure that the responses from chatbots were able to be limited enough so that they could avoid doing harm to a patient, for instance, giving them incorrect advice. They also recommend lots of supervised training so that more aspects of the AI model could be controlled. So with all of these different types of digital devices that we're covering, there's bound to be some cybersecurity risks. So what are EU regulators doing to keep their medical devices safe? So the MDR and the IVDR, which I've mentioned, the medical device and IVD regulations in the EU, they actually contain cybersecurity requirements that relevant products must meet, which is obviously most medical devices, even if they're not technically a digital device, um, that might have some digital components. So that's the first port of call, really. So for instance, these set pre and post market requirements relating to the design of a device, its operational risk to keep patients safe from cyber breaches, as well as establishing effective quality management systems for reporting of incidents and so on. But in addition to these requirements, the Network and Information Security Directive, there was actually an NIS Directive number one, and then there's recently been a new version which repealed the first version so that's in force now and this sets reporting obligations for medtech companies in relation to cyber security so in the first nis directive medtech companies actually weren't included and now they are so that's been a bit of a change for the sector and there are other horizontal legislations being proposed as well such as the cyber resilience act but as it stands medical devices are actually exempt from this legislation although this could change given the proposal is yet to be finalized And in fact, some experts have said that medical devices should be included in that act. But as with everything in the EU at the moment, everything's under development. So I guess we'll see what happens with the Cyber Resilience Act and whether medical devices end up being included. Um, What do cybersecurity regulations look like in the US? 
So kind of looking at it from a high level, I'm just kind of thinking about some recent news that I've heard. Actually, the time we're recording it this week, there was a really large cybersecurity breach in a healthcare delivery organization. Um, and there have been a lot of reports in the med tech industry about the slow uptake of cybersecurity features. Um, a lot of times due to the fact that you have just really outdated medical devices that are in hospitals that aren't up to par with current cybersecurity standards that have old vulnerabilities in them that haven't been patched. So recently, Congress granted the FDA some power to require things like software bills of materials or SBOMs in pre-market submissions for connected medical devices. Now, this doesn't you know, necessarily go back to legacy devices, but software bills of materials are itemized lists of software components in a device. And this requirement is already in place for U.S. manufacturers submitting new devices. But they have until October 1st of this year, kind of a grace period to get their affairs in order before the FDA will begin issuing refusal to accept decisions based on incorrect cybersecurity requirements. I also wanted to mention two international guidelines that came out recently from the International Medical Device Regulatory Forum, both of which we've written about, one on the principles and practices for legacy medical devices and one on SBOM. So you can check those out at our website and they will also be linked. Yeah, the International Medical Device Regulatory Forums, that's a bit of a mouthful. Those guidance documents are really interesting because, as you said, they're, they're international, so they're relevant for manufacturers of these devices really in all major markets. So let's switch gears a little bit because we both cover reimbursement. What does reimbursement for digital health products look like in the US? definitely a tricky subject. So the biggest problem and hurdle we face is that there isn't actually a code within the Medicare and Medicaid system for software itself. And Medicare and Medicaid, for those who aren't familiar, is the public U.S. healthcare. There's codes for software when it's used in conjunction with services, but for a digital health product by itself, the pathway to reimbursement is a lot trickier than for, say, maybe a quote-unquote traditional medical device like an implant. So I attended a conference recently from the Digital Therapy Therapeutics Alliance in June. And while they were talking about specifically reimbursements of digital therapeutics, a few people who worked in these government bodies talked about how hard it is for public coverage of digital health products in general. You know, government agencies in the U.S. are notoriously understaffed and people at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services are getting proposals for new products to cover every single day. And as most of these agents expressed during the panels, it's easier to move forward on something that's at risk of being taken away than a new solution solution like a digital health product. An interesting thing is that the Digital Therapeutics Alliance also put out a comprehensive report on digital therapeutic policy and reimbursement in the EU, and the landscape, at least for those products, really varies from country to country. So can you give us a bird's eye view of reimbursement of digital health products in the EU? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Reimbursement in Europe for all medicines and devices is very complicated indeed because each member state is responsible for establishing its own funding, reimbursement and procurement system. So this isn't done at an EU level, but rather at a national or even regional level. And for digital health products, it's especially difficult because they're new technologies and the pathways aren't necessarily in place to evaluate these products and to decide whether they're cost effective. So in the UK, for instance, 
an organisation called NICE, which stands for the National Institution of Health and Care Excellence, assesses the cost effectiveness of medical products and makes funding recommendations to the NHS, which is the national health system. So for medicines, this means there's quite clear guidance on which drugs are typically reimbursed. So if you know you go to your doctor with a health condition, they're going to have to follow this guidance of what drugs they can and can't give you. But for digital health products, and in fact, most medical devices, uh, NICE guidance doesn't necessarily mean a product will be funded by the local NHS system. So essentially, it can be a bit of a postcode lottery for patients in terms of access to digital health tech. NICE has recognised that more work needs to be done to promote the use of digital medtech in the NHS. And it is piloting schemes that are focused on fast-tracking innovative products. So these schemes will evaluate products that maybe don't have all of the evidence yet to definitively prove that they're cost-effective, but they have evidence that show they are clinically effective. Um, And the idea is that those products will be reimbursed for a set amount of time. uh, And after this time, it will allow there to be more data, basically, to decide if they're actually cost-effective. In other countries like Germany and France uh, and Belgium, these countries have also begun to introduce more robust guidelines for reimbursement of digital apps. Germany is probably the leader in this field within Europe. So if you want to read more about that, you can look up MedTech Insight articles that I'll make sure there's a couple linked about the DJA system. So it's a capital D, small i, capital G, capital A. It's short for a German word, but rest assured those articles will be linked below for anybody who wants to read more. All right. And with that, I think we'll wrap it up for this episode. Thank you so much, Eliza, for the discussion, everything you've done for MedTech Insight and this podcast, MedTech Connect. We wish you all the best at Pink Sheet. And if you want to hear more from Eliza, she's not going very far. So you can find her at pink.pharmaintelligence.informa.com or on Twitter at Eliza Slother. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Hannah. MedTech Connect is a podcast from Sightline. You can find more MedTech Connect episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. If you want to read more articles like the ones mentioned in this podcast, you can go to medtechinsight.com. Thanks for listening.